there were several of you, and Brother Bishop Heather was one of the first ones who, when I said there's several subjects we could talk about when we finished with Haggai and the fruit of the Spirit and these things, he kept coming back to me and saying, can you go through the armor of God? And I thought we kind of covered some of that with the fruit of the Spirit. Not really. It's a different perspective of what the shield of faith is. But I kind of put it on a back burner. And then when I got this diagnosis, Brother Bishop had asked me if he could teach kind of an overview class on it, just kind of go over it quickly. I said, please, that'd be wonderful. And he did a beautiful job. I got to hear all of your classes now. I finally have got to listen to all of them. I'm going to get them all on CD so everybody does have them. I think we sent out your first one, Brother Cosette, in November. I think it was early November. And then Brother Bishop taught one in late October, right after all this started coming to a head. Brother John taught one. All of you did a nice job. And it was interesting. Every one of you that taught a class had a little bit different feeling to the class. It was a little bit different type of ambiance and feeling to the class. And I appreciated that. This class, if the Lord inspires it, if we keep moving through it, which I certainly hope we do, if the Lord allows me to finish it, which I expect that he'll allow me to finish this class and hopefully many, many more to come, probably will be in a book in a CD type set form too, because when we're on a subject like that, that's usually how we do it. We put it in a topical type of package in a book and a CD. But I started saying Brother Bishop was, there were several of you, Brother Bishop was probably the most vehement, that isn't the word to use, that usually has anger associated with it, but... Brother Bishop Adamant, there's a good word. These words, the A-N-T is on the end, you know, forceful. He was one of the most adamant about, would you do it? And after he went through it, I thought, well, Brother Bishop got it covered, so I don't need to go through the armor of God. He helped me with that one. But after listening to it, it didn't cause me to think I needed to add to what he said necessarily, but it caused me to think I need to talk about this subject because it inspired me listening to him talk on it. And the last request he made to me about a subject to teach on was on this subject. And I told my wife, I'll just see what I feel. I'll sit down and just start writing out my thoughts on some of these verses. It's only about 11 verses, but you know how long it takes me to go through 11 verses, especially when they're this packed. It's only about 11 verses, beginning with the 10th verse of the 6th chapter of Ephesians. And what I found as soon as I started going through the 10th verse, I couldn't get past the 10th verse. I've spent the past week writing and praying and thinking on the 10th verse. I haven't even gotten to the next verse where it says, put on the whole armor of God yet. I'm still in the verse where he says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. I haven't even got past that verse. Can you feel it when you hear that verse? hard to get past it, you know. It's such a powerful verse. But it's not just the power of the verse that I can't get past. It's what is in that verse, what it really means to be in the Lord, what it means to be strong in the Lord, why he gives you the power of his might. It's a powerful verse. And you need to understand that verse really before you even start into the next verse where you're going to start hearing about the armor of God because you're never going to be able to put on the armor of God if God doesn't give you the strength to do it. God's armor is heavy. It's heavy, saints. It's heavy to put on faith when you're looking at a dire diagnosis of some kind. It's hard to put it on. It's a heavy thing to pick up. That shield is so heavy you can hardly lift it. But then once you get it in place, and once you get your feet anchored, oh, there's a peace that comes over you knowing you're covered by that shield. And you can go on through piece by piece. But you have to have strength to put on the armor of God. You're going to have to have strength to keep it on. You're going to have to have strength to use it. You've got to do all three things at least. You've got to be able to put it on. You've got to be able to keep it on. And you've got to be able to use the different pieces of the armor effectively. The vast majority of the pieces of the armor of the Lord are defensive elements. A sword can be 
offensive or defensive. You can beat back someone's attack with a sword, but generally a sword is an offensive weapon. So I don't want you getting the impression as we go through the armor of God that it's all just defensive. It is not. It is both defensive and offensive. And you can get the wrong impression from some of the words that are even in the passage. Around four times, use this word stand or withstand in just a couple of verses, telling you what the purpose is. The stand or withstand is why you need the armor of God. Whether against the wiles of the devil or the spiritual wickedness in high places, rulers of the darkness of this world, and all those other things that we have to deal with, we have to be able to put on the armor of God, be able to keep it on, as I said, and you've got to be able to use it so you can stand. And standing sounds defensive. And I'll come back to this when we get to that verse. That just sounds like something you do in a defensive posture to stand. But you need to understand how that word was used at this period in the ancient world, what it would have meant to them. If they were talking about them standing in a conflict, they meant you're in the middle of the battle and you cannot run. You can't turn your back. You can't lose ground. If you were to say that an army stood or an army stood versus retreating, they're not just standing there defensively. They're fighting and they haven't stopped fighting. It's when you stop fighting and you start retreating that you're no longer standing. So standing even is far deeper in meaning than you might realize until you start to look at not only the original language, because it's pretty straightforward there, but until you start to look at the cultural context, what it would have meant to someone in that day to say, look, I want you to take a stand and stand. Well, that's not just getting behind your castle wall and hunkering down so nobody can shoot an arrow at you. That's uh, exhortation given to an individual that's in the middle of a conflict and saying, you got to keep fighting and don't run. You got to keep fighting and don't fall back. You got to keep fighting and don't retreat. So it's a little stronger than just a defensive posture. So as I started saying, I really have felt an inspiration to go through these verses and look at them in a lot of detail. In part, in honor of my friend, Brother Bishop, he might be able to hear them now if we play the CD for them, but I'm hoping one day he can hear it and read whatever book we put together and be able to experience it with us as we do in our live Bible studies. I quoted this verse already that I'm going to talk about tonight, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I'm almost certain there's no possibility we're going to get through this verse in one night. It's just the nature of how much is packed in there. What I'll probably do is some of the more technical things and some things like quotes and things of other people or informational type things that are deeper in nature, I'll probably just include in the book and won't talk about live. We'll keep the live classes a little bit more concise if that's even possible. But this 10th verse is the point at which you would begin this subject. You wouldn't start with the 11th where it says, put on the whole armor of God. You want to start with where Paul is saying, finally, because Paul is getting ready to wrap up this letter. This epistle that he's written to the Ephesians, he's getting ready to bring close to it. Going through these verses, we're not going to go through the whole end of the chapter because he makes some personal comments about things at the end about different people that aren't really applicable to this subject. But we will go through the bulk of that, as I said, about 11 verses down through where he calls for prayer. And I so appreciate that Brother Bishop didn't end where so many people end just on the last parts of the armor and they don't include prayer. Now, prayer, it's a weapon, but I'm not sure if Paul intended it to be part of the armor because each other thing he associated with a piece of armor, prayer he did not. But it is a weapon regardless, and it needs to be included in the package of what you're doing if you're going to wear that armor. Prayer is going to have to be something that's going to be one of the tools you use. And then I also appreciate, I wasn't expecting him to do this, Sister Heather, but as I was listening to him, I heard him go into the next two verses after that, which I'm probably going to do too. 
He was telling them to put on the armor of God. And then, whether you realize it or not, he was applying it to himself because when he got down to the issues of prayer, the prayer is for them and for him and for the church. And one of the things that he's asking prayer for is right after the verse about prayer, in the next two verses, he says that I might have the boldness and the strength and the ability to preach the gospel to stand and to deliver the message that God's given me. That's an important part of the package too, because that's one of the reasons we need the armor of the Lord is not just to stand in some kind of a monastic way, like you're a monk in a cave somewhere, like we're hiding out from the world. And if they come to our door, we got it barricaded. So we're taking a stand. That's not the stand we take as Christians. We are in the midst of a dark and dying world, but we're wearing the armor of light. You don't wear that in a cave. We're out in the midst of the darkness of this world wearing it. That's an uncomfortable place to be. It might be more comfortable being hiding out somewhere. But we are in the world. We're just not of the world. And it requires us, if you're going to be in the world and not allow the world to affect you, you're going to have to have something between you and the world. That's what that armor is for. Part of it is to protect you from the effects and influences of the world. Part of it is to protect you from the effects and influences of the supernatural realm. If you, as our assembly does, believe that there is a reality to the supernatural realm in terms of entities in the supernatural realm behind some of the activities in the world. And there is the other layer that I don't want to confuse with the first two. Whether you realize it or not, there's sometimes you need the armor of the Lord to protect you against yourself. I'll just let you think about that. And when we get to the different pieces, we might discuss it in more detail. There's times that you better have faith because you will start to question your faith. You won't have to have somebody whispering in your ear that's an evil spirit or something. You won't have to have the neighbor who is an atheist whispering in your ear. The trials of life will cause you to question your faith. Suffering will cause you to question your faith. Unanswered prayers will cause you to question your faith. And all kinds of other things. When you're not sure where God's at in a situation or circumstance, it'll cause you to question. That's just faith. That's just the shield of faith. So sometimes you have to shield yourself against yourself. I realize that's not its primary meaning, but sometimes you've got to shield your own mind against certain things. So there's layers to it, and we'll talk about those as we go through it. But I started saying, I'm starting with this 10th verse for an obvious reason, that Paul is obviously bringing to close this letter, but you cannot start with the 11th verse because you won't be able to accomplish the 11th verse unless you first accomplish what he tells you to do in the 10th verse. Finally, my brethren, by the way, he does use that phrase for the Jews in Romans 9.3. He says, my brethren, the Jews. He's not talking to the Jews. He's talking to his spiritual brethren there, the people that are children of God that are in the church, born again of the Spirit of God, Spirit-filled saints. When he says, finally, my brethren, my brethren, my Spirit-filled brothers and sisters in this church in Ephesus, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then he says, put on the whole armor of God in the next verse. But you have to start with this verse. I'll talk more about that a little bit later, possibly, but you have to start with this verse. The first thing you have to have is the strength to do it. You have to have the strength to do it. Now, this is an interesting thing because before you put on the armor, you're going to have to be strong enough to put it on. But then you're going to have to get used to wearing it until you get strong enough to be able to wear it all the time. You understand? Because as you're going to find out when we get into this a little bit later, again, and we're not going to even get through this verse tonight, but in the next couple of verses, you're going to find out you're never to take the armor off. When he says put on the armor of God, you don't put it on and take it off. Whenever you face a problem, you put it back on. You keep it on. You're not to ever take it off. You might not have thought of that. You might think, you know what, I'll pick up my shield of faith whenever I think the fiery darts are on their way. Listen. But let me just use what our modern fiery darts are in the natural realm. Somebody fires a bullet at you. If you hear it, it's already too late. By the time you hear it, it probably has hit you. 
The nature of the speed of a bullet and the speed of sound is such that if you hear the crack of it, it's already either pretty close to you, if it's being fired at you, I mean, I don't mean if it's way out in the woods somewhere, or you might have got hit with it and didn't know it yet. That's how the fiery darts of the wicked are. You can't decide to go looking for your shield of faith because the fiery darts of the wicked are coming. You'll get hit by quite a few of them before you find it if you do. You have to always have your shield of faith. And in the sense of all these parts of this armor, you have to always keep it on. That's something we don't think about. A natural soldier can, when he's not fighting in a conflict, or maybe perhaps training if he trains in full gear, can take his gear off. That's kind of what you look forward to, you know, if you've ever worn the kind of gear that modern combat soldiers wear. It weighs some weight. Most special operations soldiers carry anywhere from 60 to 80 pounds on them. You wouldn't think so, and it's astonishing how fast people can move. It shows you how good a shape they're in with 60 to 80 pounds on them to be able to fight in a battle. But it's a relief to take it off, you know, when you got all that weight on you and think, ah, I can relax now. I can go home, take off all my gear, so to speak, put it down, put on some comfortable clothes. You know, we just had a verse that we talked about when we were in the, and I do hope to finish this sometime too, live or otherwise, if the Lord will allow me, that last half of the Song of Solomon. But one of our first verses, you remember what the Shulamite was doing. She said, I took off my coat. Why would I put it back on? What a horrible thing to say. You weren't supposed to take your coat off. You're never supposed to take that covering off. You're supposed to always be ready for him to be at the door. You don't wait for him to knock and then say, oh, sorry, I'm not ready to answer the door. Got to get dressed now. You have to stay dressed. It was bad enough that the five foolish virgins didn't bring extra oil. What if they had decided to put their pajamas on? Forgive the chaffy example. They certainly wouldn't have been ready to go to the wedding feast when the midnight hour came and the cry went out, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. You better believe they were all sleeping in their work clothes, so to speak. They were ready to go. Problem is, the foolish virgins weren't ready for the length of the journey. They weren't ready for how long it was going to take, and so their oil ran out. So we have to stay in our armor. That's a thought I'm sure I'll develop a little bit more as we go a little further into this, but that's important. But in order to do that, as I've said several times already, we have to be strong. You've got to be strong enough to put it on, just to lift it and put it on. I have trained with a lot of different weapons through the years for a lot of different reasons, and I can tell you some weapons are heavy. A child is not just going to pick it up and use it in any kind of an effective way. You've got to be strong enough to lift it. You've got to be strong enough to use it. You remember what David said about Saul's armor? He said, I haven't proved it. You know what he meant by that when he said, I can't wear your armor. I haven't proved it. I'm not used to wearing that is what David was really saying. I'd have to get used to it to be able to fight in something like that. I'm used to fighting in my shepherd's clothing. And think about that. He fought a lion and a bear and defeated them. He didn't need any armor for it. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. You're going to need some. But I mean in terms of carnal armor. He didn't need any carnal armor for it. Saul's armor wouldn't have helped him. In fact, it would have slowed him down. David needed speed to be able to do things he did to protect those sheep. I think I heard Brother Costa talking about this in one of the Bible studies he took, or one of the brethren. If you're going to take a lion by its beard and smite it, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to need to be pretty quick on your feet and movement to be able to pull that off because a lion is an agile creature. Cats are agile creatures, aren't they? They can move quickly and side to side. If you're going to get a hold of a lion by his beard, the scruff of his neck, that's not the back. When I was a kid, I thought, well, he must have jumped on his back and grabbed. That's not his back of his mane. That's his throat hair. For you to get in the face of a lion, take him by the beard and smite him is an incredible act of courage. And some people would think it would possibly be foolhardy to do something like that. But David, listen now, this is going to come right into this verse. David was strong in the Lord. 
David knew who his God was, and he knew that he was being faithful to what he'd been tasked to do. It may not have even been a spiritual calling. Sometimes the things we do don't have to be spiritual for it to be beneficial to God's people. That was beneficial to David's family who's protecting those sheep. You can do a very natural job in the church and think, well, I'm not doing anything spiritual. I'm just vacuuming the sanctuary. I'm going to tell you what, I pray that anybody vacuuming this sanctuary, the power of God falls on you, so you have the hardest time vacuuming you've ever had in your life because the Spirit of God won't lift. Now, that'd make your job pretty rough, wouldn't it? But you'd come out of here feeling pretty good, even if the vacuum lines were all over here like crazy. When I was a kid, I thought I was going to do my father a favor. We had a, I guess it was about a two-acre yard at that time. I thought I was going to do him a favor. He'll be so proud of me. I'm going to get the mower. I think I know how to start it. I don't know how old I was. I couldn't have been more than 10. I'm going to mow this whole yard for him because he needs it mowed, you know, and he's working, he was working morning to night hours. I got out there and mowed that yard. I thought I did the most beautiful job you've ever seen. But now looking back on it, when I realized what it looked like, (laughs) I wasn't going down over and up. I just was going however I felt like to go. I was just walking around the yard. It was swirlies and everything all around that. Oh, he was mad as a hornet when he got home. He would rather I hadn't mowed it at all because he had to live with the neighbors looking at that till the grass grew back in so it didn't look like it was circles and zigzags and everything else I'd created. I thought I was making a piece of art, I guess. I didn't know how to mow a yard. And you better know how to wear the armor of the Lord. You're going to need some education and know how to wear the armor of the Lord. God will help you put it on. He's not going to leave you to yourself. You're not putting on carnal armor. It's his armor. He'll help you put it on. He'll help you keep it on. He'll help you use it. But you have to put it on. Listen, I did say he'll help you. You have to keep it on. You have to use it. He's not going to do all that for you. He'll help you, but he's not going to do it for you. And we're in a day of the church where, unfortunately, some elements of the Reformation made this worse rather than better, where there are individuals who think God's going to do all that for you. He'll put the armor on me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't even have to put the armor on. I think there's a lot of Christians who don't even think they need any of the armor. They think they'll be fine without the armor. Do you think you're going to go into battle and be fine without the armor? Listen, it's just this simple. If God told you, this is what I want you to do in a battle, and he did. You can look at many examples about Gideon as a simple example. God told Gideon some specific instructions, gave him some insight and some inspiration and other things, and some direct instructions on what to do to win this battle. They had some very unique things to do. They had to cut down their forces down in a way that you'd never do fighting. The exact opposite, counterintuitive to what you do fighting a battle. You want more men, even if they're, forgive the expression, but even if they're cannon fodder, you want more men, even if it's just people to distract the troops while you move other troops in, you know, the front line, but that's what's so brutal about being in the front. A lot of times you're just a distraction while the cavalry is getting in place or whatever's happening to keep them busy. But they cut their troops down. They use these strange and unique methods of attacking and won the battle in a mighty way. What if Gideon had said to God, I'm sorry, but I think I'm going to need 10,000 men. You know, they got more than 10 times that. I'm going to need 10,000 men at minimum, Lord. So I know you want to cut these numbers down, but we're going to go ahead and go into battle with 10,000. And look, if you can save with 300, you could save with 10,000. You know what would have happened? They would have gone to the battle with 10,000 and been massacred. They could have gone to the battle with a million and been massacred. It wouldn't have mattered because it has to be done God's way. It's got to be done God's way, you saints. And God intends us to put on this armor. He intends us to fight with this armor on. And by the way, he intends us to put all of it on. What's the next verse say? Put on the... Oh, not just the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. That means you don't get to pick and choose which pieces you're comfortable with. You know what? I think I'm comfortable just hunkering down behind the shield of faith. You know, I don't really want to fight. I just want to hunker down. 
No, you have to have all the armor of God. The only way you're going to be able to stand and withstand is if you have all of it. And that takes time to develop. It takes time to get the strength to wear it all. Sometimes maybe you're having a struggle wearing one piece. But as time goes on, you get stronger. You develop, you know. It's part of what happens. You wear that armor for a while and you start to prove it, to use David's word. You're not proving the armor so much. That's a very archaic word. What you're doing is you're getting used to it so that then it doesn't feel as heavy. I remember the first time I trained in certain weapons, I picked them up and thought, how in the world could someone fight with this? It's so heavy. It's so cumbersome. But then the more you train with it, the more you used to have it in your hands. After hours of moving with that weapon in all kinds of different ways, just training, you get used to the weight. And then it doesn't seem that heavy. And someone else might pick it up and think, how in the world are you moving that quick with that? It's because you've gotten used to the weight. And that's the same thing with the armor of God. You've got to put it on, and it'll be hard to put on. God will help you. You've got to keep it on, and sometimes that's hard because it can chafe a little bit, you know. It just can There's things about the armor of God that just chafe a little bit. They're not comfortable. But it will get comfortable if you break it in, you know. You ever gotten some shoes that when you first put them on your feet, you thought, these are going back. But they were soft enough leather that if you knew enough about shoe leather, you'd know what you need to do. Just wear them around a little bit because they're going to stretch some, and then they're going to fit perfect. You go buy a bigger size, then they're going to stretch, and then they're going to be loose on your feet. That's how the armor of God is. It can feel uncomfortable, but once you get used to it, it's going to be the most comfortable thing you've ever worn. You'll never want to take it off. The more used to it you get, the more you won't want to take it off, and that's the goal, is to get to a place where you don't take it off, where you keep the armor on, and then you piece by piece cover yourself in the armor of God until you've got all the armor of God on. And you prove that to the point where you're used to wearing it. You can bear the weight until after a while you don't even notice the weight. And then it becomes just an extension of who you are. You're just so used to it. That's just part of who I am. I feel funny not having it. And that's how you should feel. So, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Paul was ending this letter when he said finally, and he was almost hitting a crescendo. He says some new things here he hadn't talked about earlier in the letter. But he also is paralleling a lot of things. I'm not going to go into it in a live class. It takes some time, but I will include it in the book in some tables or something. If you look at some of the earlier chapters and some of the things he's saying in this list of the armor of the Lord, he has already talked about this, whether you realize it or not, in this letter. He didn't call it the armor of the Lord, but he already talked about it in the first chapter. I will go to that because that's important. In the first chapter, he talked about almost word for word being strong in the Lord and the power of his might. It's almost word for word some of the very same words he's using here. And he talks about some of the same things that are part of the armor of the Lord earlier in the book. And as I said, when we put this in a book form or in some kind of a written form for you, I'll make sure you have a chart that shows you that, where you can see how Paul has been talking about this subject. And now it's almost like he's wrapping it all up and saying, now, finally, I've told you a lot of things. And Ephesians has a lot of subjects to it. We're not going through the whole book right now. That would take us quite a bit more time. But Ephesians covers a lot of ground. A lot of it is about your walk with the Lord and how the church is to be and the structure of the church and order and operation and other things. And especially what your walk with the Lord is, as I said, and the intent of you to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And part of following the footsteps of Jesus is you're going to have to put on the whole armor of God. So he says, finally, my brethren, and I said that I think that is a wrap-up of the letter. There are some scholars who believe that, and it can be translated this way, that believe that what this means is from now on. You can translate that Greek phrase, finally, as from now on. And what they're thinking it means is from now on put on the armor of God. But that doesn't even make sense to me when you think about this. 
He's writing to a spirit-filled church. They surely had parts of this armor already. So for him to say from now on, as if they never had done it before, would be a little nonsensical to me. I think it's meant the way it usually is meant as the word finally. What he's saying is, listen, after everything else I've told you about how you have to live for God, remember the fourth chapter of Ephesians is one of the most powerful chapters about that, where it talks about how Jesus is our measuring stick and we have to live up to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ and to a perfect man. So now he's saying, finally, after all these things I've told you about how you're to live and how the church is to be, here's how you can get there. You got to put on the armor of God if you're going to live this kind of life, if you're going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. You'll never make it without the armor of God. You'll get spiritually slain on the roadside without the armor of God. You will not survive the journey without the armor of God. So I do think this is intended to say finally as in kind of a wrap-up, a final exhortation. Paul starts closing this section of the book of Ephesians by coming back full circle, as I said a moment ago, to some of his statements he had made earlier in the book. When we get to each individual part, I'll talk about this in more detail. But for now, I'm just going to focus on the issue of him talking about strength. When he started this letter to the Ephesians, after some of his introductory comments down through about the 16th verse, around the 15th to the 17th verse, he starts shifting gears a little bit and talking about the strength that the Lord gives. I'll start with the 17th verse. He says, "...that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him." The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. That phrase right there is almost word for word what he says here in Ephesians 6.10. He repeats it almost word for word. But if you highlight, this is how it is in my Bible, I have the phrase, that you may know. Because there's a number of things that you need to know. It says that you may know what is the hope of his calling. But you know, when he starts saying that, we need wisdom and understanding so we can know some things. You following me, what I just read? He said, I pray that you'll have the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. You'll have knowledge. So you can know some things. And then he gives you a list of some of the things he wants you to know. You need to know what the hope of your calling is. You need to know what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is. You know why you need to know what those things are. It'll give you hope to keep moving forward when you're in a terrible conflict or when you're dealing with questions in your heart or in your mind or when you're just taking blows and it's hard to keep pressing forward or when your faith is being questioned by someone that is challenging you or even by yourself. You need to have enough knowledge and understanding of God and what God has done and what God is doing and what God has done for you, not just what he's done corporately for the world, but what he's done for you. When it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that is a corporate statement, saints, but you should personalize it too, because God knows every bit of what he means when he says the world. When God inspired that statement for his son to say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he knew what every piece and part of the world was that he loved. Not just in that day, but everyone that would ever be. He looked forward in time, and like the old gospel song says, when he was on the cross, say it real loud, I was on his mind. Do you believe you were? Well, if you know enough about God, you understand enough about God, you'll believe you were. You have enough knowledge and understanding of the omniscience of God, his knowledge, the scale of his knowledge, that he has all knowledge. He could look right down through the halls of time and see you in the future and say, and I want them to be covered by the blood of my son and personalize it for yourself, saints. It's not just some general thing that you just got lucky to sneak into. You didn't sneak into it. God did have you in mind. 
personally. Isn't that precious? And Paul wants them to have the knowledge of the hope of their calling, the riches, the glory, and the inheritance of the saints, because there's times you're going to wonder, I don't know if I can keep moving forward. I don't know if I can make the sacrifices I need to make. Or maybe you're just so befuddled by the conditions that are going on. Your faith is being strained to its limits. Don't forget the hope of your calling. Don't forget the riches. And we're not just talking about gold and silver riches. We're talking about spiritual riches. What greater spiritual treasure is there than the resurrection of the dead, saints? Is there something better? So see, no matter what you're facing, you still have that hope. No matter what is going on, we still have the hope of the riches of the glory of his inheritance. You know what your inheritance is if you're a child of God? Life. That's your inheritance. Whatever this life is, is a pale and passing shadow. You have eternal life. Praise his holy name, saints. So thank God for the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It's not just in the saints that it passed on in terms they're going to have a resurrection. It's in us too. If the life of the Spirit of God is working in you, you have the life that's going to raise you from the dead working in your body. Praise his holy name. But notice he doesn't stop with that. He's making a list of what he wants you to have enough knowledge and understanding about. I'm going to go back to that again. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, back in the 17th verse, the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of understanding and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know. Paul's praying for the church just like I'm praying for you, I'm praying for myself. I'm praying for each one of you individually, and I'm praying for me. God, will you give me a spirit of understanding about what's going on right now? Don't we need a spirit of understanding? I mean what's going on on the whole scale of things going on, not just one or two things. We've got several big things going on in our assembly that are major things that we need God to move on. One of them is related to me, so I hate to even include myself in that. That's so counter to my personality. But my life is in this situation. Brother Bishop's life is in this situation. God, will you open the eyes of our understanding? Give us a spirit of knowledge to understand what you're doing right now, why you're doing it. If there's something we can do to make the process go quicker, you know, go easier. And if there's something we can do to perhaps bring a close to the process, and whatever that means, because God's ending of his processes is always positive if you stay on the Lord's side. It'll always end up being positive. He's not done, though, with those first things he said. He's saying, you need to have the spirit of knowledge. Have your eyes, your understanding opened. So you'll understand some of these things. One of them is, as we said, the hope of your calling. One's the riches, the glory of your inheritance. That Those of us that are the saints that are alive right now have received the down payment on it. The earnest of our inheritance. We've already received that, that glory of that inheritance. You've already received the earnest of it, saints, right now, if you've got the Holy Spirit living in your life. And nobody can take that from you if you won't give it up. That's an inheritance that can't be stolen. The bank of heaven can't go under, saints. It doesn't need FDIC and it doesn't need any guarantees because the guarantor of the bank of heaven is the almighty God himself. It can never go bankrupt. Praise his holy name. His promises will always come to pass and the end result will always come to pass. That's part of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, not only that have gone on to their rest, but us right now. We've got some of the glory of that inheritance living in us. We just haven't experienced the fullness of our inheritance yet. And he's not done with the list, is he? What is the exceeding greatness 
of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Notice he talks about power in two different ways here, just like he does in Ephesians 6.10, which is part of what we'll talk about. There might be two different aspects of God's power that he's referencing in Ephesians 6.10 as well as here. There's some greatness of God's power, and I'm going to come back to this, that he exercises that you don't have anything to do with. I'm not just talking about like him creating the universe. You didn't have any part in that. I'm talking about him doing things for you that you didn't even know him well enough to be involved in. Do you know when God reached down his mighty hand into this earth and touched you and drew your attention to him, it was an exercise of his power that you had nothing whatsoever to do with? He just chose, what an act of mercy and grace, saints, to use his might and extend it out to fallen man and to touch your heart and catch your attention so you could experience something that would cause you to want to turn to him, potentially. That's part of what he does in our conversion experience. But in every stage of our experiences with him, he's exercising his power. After your conversion experience, there's other experiences we have, but one of the hallmark experiences, if you're taking it in the large-scale experiences, the critical salvational steps that have to happen, is when you're filled with the Holy Ghost. Do you think you filled yourself with the Holy Ghost? Do you think you just worked it up? If you did, it wasn't the Holy Ghost. People have done that. They've worked themselves up into a fervor and had an emotional outburst and got excited and thought they had the Holy Ghost, maybe made themselves speak in tongues. You can make yourself speak in a jibbery-jabbery kind of way and think you're speaking in tongues. You need to be careful. We want it to be real. The way we make sure it's real is we get God here and we make certain God is here before our emotions overcome the environment. That's why we don't always start at a hectic pace. Sometimes you can come walking in the building and the Spirit is so powerful, you just come in shouting. I've had that happen. Sometimes the power of God just comes on you in a quick way. Sometimes you have to wait on the Lord. You've got to coax the Spirit. And I don't mean in some kind of a psychologically manipulative... You can't manipulate the Spirit to come in in a psychologically manipulative way. But you can appeal to God to let His Spirit fill this place. I do it every time I walk in this building. I'm appealing to God. Even if I don't say the words out loud, Lord, will you fill this place with your Spirit? And when His Spirit fills this place and we're certain His Spirit is in this place, then our emotions can plug into the right thing. See, your emotions can plug into a lot of things. Back in my younger days, when I was outside of church, I used to love to go to concerts of all different kinds. Your emotions can get stimulated very quickly. You can plug into the melody of a song, the sound, the volume, the people around you. Same thing can happen in church. Your emotions can plug into something that is not the Spirit of God. It's just an emotional outburst. It's just a carnal expression of excitement or whatever it might be. We want to make sure the Spirit of God is here. Sometimes that takes a ramping up to get there before you can get the feeling that the Spirit's really here. It just isn't excitement. I'm just not walking in the building. And by the way, you could do this, I suppose. And if the Spirit of God responded to this, then do it. I don't just walk in the building and start shouting before I feel anything, thinking if I shout long enough, the Spirit will come in. That's not how we bring the Spirit in. That's what the prophets of Baal were doing on Mount Carmel, trying to shout and yell out until they got the attention of their God. We get our heart right with God. That may take you raising your hands and shouting. It may take you crying. It may take getting down on your knees. But we get our heart right with God, and then when our heart is right with God, God draws near to that. You know, God draws near to those that are of a broken and a contrite heart and spirit. He's drawn to it. And so when our heart gets right with God, then He's drawn to us. And when He's drawn to us, His Spirit fills this place. 
That can happen very quickly. Like I said, I've had times I walked in a building and the power of God just moved in a roar almost immediately over the building. And I've had times I walked in a building and it took some time. It took a ramping up of songs and things to bring it to the level where the Spirit was starting to saturate the atmosphere enough that it could change the emotions that were in the hearts of the people to get on the right wavelength with the emotions of God because our emotions are not always on the same wavelength as God's. God might be brokenhearted over something and you come in excited. And He's not in an excited... Listen, this is almost too small a word for God too. But He's not in an excited mood right now. He's not happy about something or he's got sorrow over something. And you're coming in fired up because that's just the state you're in because of your emotions or vice versa. We can come in the church house and we're upset about something. We're angry. Maybe someone cut us off in traffic right before we pulled into the driveway. And God is excited about what's going on in the church and he wants the people to feel that. And so he comes in in a rushing mighty wind and you're coming in in a foul spirit and you're not going to connect with that right away. We've got to find the wavelength God is on and get on God's wavelength. So one of the things in this list is that he wants us to know and understand the exceeding greatness of his power. You know what that means? You really need to know how big God is. The exceeding greatness of his power is talking about the scale of it. It's not just what you feel, it's what you know. You know, you can feel the power of God. That's a powerful and important thing. But it's what you know. I want to have a knowledge of just how big God is, an understanding of just how big God is. And all of this is leading to the armor of God, whether you realize it or not. Part of that's what allow you to put that armor on and keep it on. I know how big God is. And I know if I keep my armor on, there's not an enemy in the heavens or on the earth that can defeat me. Nothing in any supernatural or natural realm can defeat an individual who is sold out to God and is armed and armored with the armor that God provides. No one can defeat an individual in that state. And even death itself isn't a defeat. So the greatness of his power to us word, meaning what has he done for you? What kind of exercise of God's power has been done on your behalf? Not just for you, though, but what kind of power has been invested in you? See, there's things God does for us that are outside of our scale. There's actions God takes. When God filled you with the Holy Spirit, there's nothing in your power that could have made that happen if it was real. You can mimic it, as I said. You can mock it. You could put on. But you cannot do the real thing without God. It takes God's power filling your vessel for that experience to occur. And that's one of the things that is the exercise of the greatness of His power to us word is when He fills you with the Holy Spirit. Some of His power fills you. You tarried for it. You were striving for it. But there's nothing you could have done to make it happen until God decided to reach down with that power and fill you with that. Those are things that God alone is in control of. He doesn't include you other than you do have to be engaged and want it. God doesn't convert somebody without them going through a conversion experience that requires them to want to be forgiven. There is a whole bank of Christianity out there that seems to think God converts people without them actually wanting to be converted. That's not what happens. You have to want to be converted. You have to seek to be converted. He has to touch your heart to give you an insight into what that is and to thus have a desire for it. It's almost like somebody holding out some food in front of you and you can smell it and you're thinking, oh, I want one of those cookies that's on that plate. You know, there's a special smell to chocolate chip cookies. There's a special smell to a lot of different baked goods, but chocolate chip cookies has a unique smell. When it first comes out of the oven and that 
oh, I'm going to head out of here and get some to eat if I don't stop. When it first comes out of the oven and the chocolate chips are melting, you know, oh, I like eating it right then. I don't want it cooling off and getting hard. First comes out of the oven, you know the smell that just fills the kitchen if it doesn't fill the whole house. It makes you want to have a cookie, doesn't it? If you like chocolate, if you like chocolate chip cookies, which most people do, it makes you want to have a taste of that. You know, that's what God does. He doesn't force us into converting. He lets us taste something in the air. We don't even get to taste it with our tongue yet. We don't get to taste it with our tongue until we start to confess. We have to confess with our mouth. Then we'll taste it with our tongue. I'm getting a little deep there, but I mean that metaphorically. But we taste it in the air. There's something that changes the atmosphere when God comes into the room, isn't there? And when God came into your room, wherever that was, in your home, here in this sanctuary, wherever it was that God touched your heart when you first went through a conversion experience, the atmosphere around you was changed. And when the atmosphere was changed, there was a scent of the Spirit of the living God that rose that is something that is almost impossible unless you are so carnal that you have hardened yourself to it to resist. You would have to fight the desire for that. And so when God enters into your presence and that desire rises in you, I want to know more about God. I want to be forgiven of my sins. Then you go through a conversion experience, but you do it by choice. You don't do it against your will. You do it because he's given you a desire, but you have to respond to that desire. You could People have done it. People have turned their back on chocolate chip cookies and walked away. That's harder for me to do, you know. you got some folks that have got some hardcore discipline. And out come the chocolate chip cookies, and they just smile and say, no, thank you. They've got enough discipline. Some people have enough resistance to God. They have literally disciplined their hearts against His presence. And so when His presence comes in or He's appealing to them, they harden themselves against it. They're literally armoring themselves against God. You know there's a carnal armor too, just like there's an armor of God. I'm not going to go through all the pieces and parts that could constitute it. That'd be a whole other series. But there's a lot of things you can arm yourself with and armor yourself with to keep God out, to keep good things out. We've got to arm and armor ourselves with the right things.